everybody. Welcome to Fully Puffed. I'm Grace and this is my co-host Catherine. Hello. And welcome to our discussion of season one, episode four, The Deer Hunters, a title that we will talk about very shortly. Before we start um, officially going into the episode, we just wanted to once again, thank everybody for following us and listening. Uh, we just got to 100 followers on Instagram. We're about yes. to hit 200 listens. Really, really cool. We're so we're, we're super grateful for everybody. We've been playing around with a bit of a format change where we want to give a summary of the episode at the beginning of the podcast, just so you guys, both you, both of those of you who have watched the show before and you, all of you who are not big Gilmore Girls people yet can have an idea what's going on in the episode before we start breaking it down. And that way we don't have to be as rigid, making sure we like get every scene. So I'm going to start a little bit giving an outline of the beginning of the episode, and then Catherine is going to tell us what happens when we get the big Chilton climax. So we start by meeting, after an opening scene, we meet Rory's English teacher, Max Bendita, and he gives her a D on her paper. So she's devastated, obviously, but she doesn't tell Lorelai because she's too embarrassed. This also starts her thinking that she can't hack it at Chilton. Lorelai then goes to parent-teacher night where she meets Mr. Medina and flirts with him and he flirts with her. And she also finds out about Rory's D. She talks to Rory about it and promises that she'll help her bring her grade up in the class. And she'll start by helping Rory to study for her Shakespeare test on Friday, which has an essay section that is 20% of Rory's final grade. So Rory and Lorelai study all week, and the night before the test, they basically pull an all-nighter. But they do fall asleep at the end of it, and they don't wake up when they're supposed to, another lateness plot device, which means that Rory has to rush to make the 30-minute drive to Chilton so she doesn't miss the test. So while she's on her way there, her car gets hit by a deer, which <laughs> <laughs> delays her and causes her to be about 10 minutes late. So 10 minutes late, Max Medina refuses to let her take the test, citing Chilton policy. And Rory freaks out on him, talking about how much she studied and how she wants to take the test. When Paris makes a snide remark, uh, Rory then freaks out on Paris and Tristan. Because of her outburst, Rory gets taken to Headmaster Charleston's office and the school calls Lorelai, who meets Rory there. When Lorelai hears about the situation, she also has a freak out, telling Headmaster Charleston, or Il Duce, as she calls him, <laughs> how unfair the policy is, especially because they studied so much, how unreasonable the school is being, and revealing that Max has sort of bad mouth to the school, to Lorelai. Headmaster Charleston acknowledges that the school is ridiculously competitive, but that's just the way it is, and tells Lorelai that Rory does not need to go there, or to Harvard. Lorelai starts thinking about this, and when she and Rory drive home, she asks if Rory really wants this, Chilton and Harvard, or if Harvard is really more of her own dream. Rory insists that wanting to go to Harvard is really her thing, 
and that Chilton is the way she'll get there. So she's going to stay and make it work. The episode ends with Max Medina calling their house and leaving a message saying that Headmaster Charleston has agreed to let Rory do some extra credit work to raise her grade and saying how lovely it was to meet Lorelai and he hopes he'll have a chance to do so again. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> setting up a divisive relationship. Yeah, so this is an episode that we have different opinions on. I don't like this episode. I liked it a little better when I watched it this time. I've never really liked it. And whenever I do a rewatch, I tend to skip it. And I can't really put my finger on why I don't like it. I think the situation is so painful for Rory. It's a little difficult for me to sit through it. Yeah, and I I think I, I may have mentioned either last week or to you privately that Alfred, my husband, refuses to watch it. And he was having some like personal life anxiety this week. And I was going to invite him because I thought, oh, like Gilmore Girls is such a cozy show. Maybe that'll help. And I was like, oh no, he can't watch this. It's the episode. It's like the worst episode you can watch when you're stressed out. Yeah. But you like it. I do. And this is something we talked about last week. I really love school scenes. I love study scenes. And I really like Chilton scenes in particular when like Chilton heavy storylines. So I love this episode. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. And weirdly, it doesn't even give me much anxiety just because I, maybe because I know things will, will work out. And I see this as like an important learning and growth moment for Rory. And then also as we'll talk about later, I feel like the show really hits its stride, especially with the characterization of Lorelai and like mom wisdom and not being the cool, like cool mom. Yes. This episode's Lorelai is the Lorelai of the rest of the show. Yeah. When she has an outburst, it's to defend Rory. Mm -hmm. It's in the interest of her daughter. And she, we see how supportive she is towards Rory. I think really for the first time here, there's so many great mom pep talks. Yes. This episode. I, that's my favorite part. Yeah. And that we get some of the enmeshed codependent dynamics here. And then we get the sense that Lorelai recognizes that and is like, oh no, okay, maybe yes. I need to fix this. Exactly. Like we get her saying, oh, this thing I do is not maybe charming or cute and quirky. It's yeah. maybe something that is hurting Rory and and bring up her life. And you're right. She's, and and we saw her do that in the last episode too, as we talked about when she discusses with Suki, continue to see that side of her here. Yeah. And then also I feel like Rory gets more of a personality, her, her little outburst really. (laughs) I love Rory's and we'll talk about this. I love Rory's outburst in this episode. I think Alexis Liddell does a really great job acting here. I think this feels like a very relatable moment to me. Yes. You know, Paris has been so awful to her and Tristan has been so awful, but you never kind of expect Rory to flip out. And the fact that she does is so cathartic. Yes, it really is. And it almost feels like a catharsis that's been building for the past three episodes. She's been in these like new circumstances and like forced to, I mean, one thing we didn't even talk about, and I don't want to, you know, like get too personal, but I grew up having one stable grandparent out of all four potential grandparents, right? So like my my maternal grandmother has, was always there for me in my life, but I didn't have relationships with my, with my other grandparents. And then like randomly one day, 
my mom decided that we should. It was just really awkward. And there were a lot of complicated emotions that came with that. And so Rory has like gone to a new school, left her best friend behind and the boy she, she has a crush on. Like this is presumably like the first potential crush that she has gone to a new school where people are not nice. They're not nice. And for the first time, she's not doing well. Yes. And she has to take a bus and that's like a whole thing. And it's like far from her house mm-hmm. and it's an ordeal to get there. And then she also has this added pressure of like, now she's got these Friday night dinners with people she doesn't know. And she has to go to the club with this old man. She doesn't know. <laughs> Rory has been under a ton of freaking pressure. And like, it's come to a boiling point. That's something that I like had never really thought about. <laughs> I think that's very well said. And I had never really thought about all of those factors until you put it together just now. And I think Alexis Bledel does a great job of acting in a way where she keeps up her like, you know, sweet, adorable in character with those, you know, the little faces she makes, but you can see that like every new thing is weighing on her a little bit more. Yeah. And she just, when she cracks, like her face kind of breaks open and she starts yelling and you really feel that. So she's under a lot of stress and she's about to be put under some more. It's so sad. So before we get into it, we did want to talk a little bit about what we've been doing, which is going over director, the writer, and we're going to talk a little bit about the title of the episode too. Yeah. Although as (laughs) I just realized, like we're going to talk about the title, even though we don't, we've never seen the film, but never seen the film. We we are not, we are Gilmore Girls experts. We're not experts on the (laughs) hunters, the film. I have looked it up on Wikipedia before this episode and before this podcast. I don't remember why, but I love to look up plots of things I'm not going to watch on Wikipedia. And it is a very dark movie about the Vietnam War. Yes. It does not appear to have any (laughs) tie-in to this episode of Gilmore Girls or frankly to Gilmore Girls in general. It's about like people coming back from Vietnam and going to Vietnam and sort of the devastation that is wrought across this blue collar community and I believe Pennsylvania. I think they picked the title of the episode because it's a it's the deer hits Rory's car. I don't think yeah. there's a deeper meaning behind that. You no, might um, on this podcast, but I do not think there is one there. No, I mean, yeah, I guess we could stretch it to, I mean, so, okay, this, uh, this started out as a joke. I was gonna say we could stretch it to be like, it's talking about PTSD. I really think that there's like a PTSD narrative under Gilmore Girls that, you know, doesn't get talked about enough. Or maybe Rory's outburst is is sort of evidence (laughs) of Rory starting to crack, maybe not in a PTSD way, but crack under that sort of pressure. Um, But pivoting from the deer hunter, the (laughs) Russian roulette, Vietnam saga. Oh, God. Yeah to um, the director, Alan Meyerson. So I'm curious, did you watch Boy Meets World? I watched like a little bit of it when it was on, like, was it on ABC Family? Yeah. Yeah, I watched watched it then, but just only I would catch it a little bit. Were you Uh, a Boy Meets World person? Oh man, oh man, yes. (laughs) Yes, I loved Boy Meets World. And like, I, (laughs) I first started watching it. My family was in England for... I don't know for my dad was doing work stuff for like three or four weeks. And so we were just there and we lived in this hotel Mm -hmm. and it was on the like Disney UK 
And I'd never seen the show before. What is the Disney UK? It was so cool. It was so much better than the Disney Channel in the States. Of which course is like, it was. Yeah, it's, that's like the dumbest thing to be like pretentious about. Like, oh, the Disney Channel is so much better in London. Um, but it was, it was cool. And like, I just remember watching a lot of Women's World. And so, and then like, when we came back, I don't know if it was just on ABC Family or if it finally moved to Disney. But anyway, I, I became obsessed with Boy Meets World. And it's a show that I will still, it's like a comfort show that I'll still put on sometimes. And so this director directed an entire season of Boy Meets World, which is kind of unusual. You know, usually directors are like, they'll do an episode here or there or whatever. Like this guy also directed like a couple episodes of Friends. I think he actually directed the one where the guy gets high he directed an episode of Lizzie McGuire, which I have to, I have to, to clarify, it was the rhythmic gymnastics episode of Lizzie McGuire, in case anyone is listening. I hated that episode. He also will direct in the future the episode Love and War and Snow, which is- Oh, I, I love that episode. Yeah. Another Max Medina heavy episode. Yeah. He's a big Max fan, apparently. Yeah, apparently. So do um, you see anything that you recognize from Boy Meets World in this episode I mean any directing styles yeah I think so it well the the women's world season is their senior year okay and so it's a it's like heavy studying scenes SAT like you know college anxiety future anxiety so I definitely picked up on that um you know friends and Lizzie McGuire oh and he also directed Police Academy 5 Fully seems like a movie Lorelai would ironically enjoy. It absolutely does. I mean, it's no hard bodies, but (laughs) (laughs) how do you fall asleep during a classic like hard bodies? We need to rent hard bodies and watch it for the, for the podcast. Yes. But real quick, I also want to mention the writer. So Jay uh, Seidel, Seidel, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, but he was also a writer producer on Veronica Mars and supervising producer of other uh, Gilmore Girl at season one episodes. He wrote an episode of Felicity, which I, w- I want to talk about, but you've never seen it. So I think we should maybe just drop it. But Felicity- I'm on a guest at some point who's, who's watched Felicity. Yeah, Felicity to me feels very much like I see how Gilmore Girls is very inspired by it. But and it starts off with a really promising premise about this young woman, you know, going off to college in New York City. And at least I'd stopped in season two because it devolved so horribly into just a love triangle. It was like every single episode was just about Felicity and torn between two men. And I was like, I can't take it anymore. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to add was that Genji Cohen from like Orange is the New Black and Weeds is also listed as a producer. Yeah, I think she's a producer for a lot of the series. Okay. I did not, I did not know that. And she may have already been a producer. I just didn't pick up on it. Yeah. I don't know if this is the first time. And the only reason I don't watch Orange is the new black, but I just, the name has always stuck with me when I see it on the screen. Cause I think it's a cool yeah. name. Oh my God, Genji Cohen. I loved Weeds and Orange is the new black and you know, they both have problems, but you can't deny that they were like super groundbreaking for complicated and nuanced portrayals of female characters for television. And so I truly had no idea she was involved at all with Gilmore Girls. So I thought that was cool. 
No, that is, and it makes sense continuity-wise that she would be continually drawn to these yeah. interesting and complex and difficult female characters. Yeah. So do you want to go into the first couple scenes? Do you have anything to say about the initial opening scene where they, they do a little stationary shopping? This whole, I'm sorry, podcast listeners, if you are not like a true like Hermione Granger, like well, at heart. We're Hermione's. Like who else would we be? Are we, we're not Rons. I love Ron, but I'm not a Ron. I, I think I'm like a Hermione Luna love good. Oh, you, you do have Luna energy. I'm a solid Hermione. I've got my feet planted a little more on the ground, but definitely got some hardcore Luna energy. I think I have a little Ginny energy too, which is controversial, <laughs> but a, a little bit, but mostly a Hermione. So it sets up the episode, right? Yeah. Rory is, is excited about, about academics. She's She doesn't want to buy a purple notepad because this is a serious school. And at this point, she's still pretty up and optimistic about Chilton. That changes when in, our, in the next scene, when oh. we are in Max Medina's classroom. Um, if you'll permit, I want to get on my soapbox a tiny bit here as I will be doing throughout the episode. Okay. Yes, please. Medina is Rory's English teacher, presumably. He's a different English teacher than we see in the first Chilton episode. That's fine. I understand that you're going to be switching people around. However, they were talking about Tolstoy and Dickens in the first Chilton episode. They have now jumped back 250 years to Shakespeare. Okay. I I felt so stupid that I did not realize that. It's right. because I'm pedantic. Like, this is my pedantic episode. I have a lot to say about the way they are they are discussing some stuff. I think this is just the episode where you and I are just nerding out, like, fully, fully. Fully nerding out. I'll we haven't even gotten to Christopher Marlowe yet. No, and I have a lot, readers, viewers, whatever you are, listeners, I have a lot to say about the uh, Christopher Marlowe slander that is going on. So... Max Medina passes papers back to everybody and Paris gets an A, Louise gets an A, Madeline gets a B and Rory gets a D. Oh, oh, poor baby, poor baby. And she's devastated. I think understandably so. Yeah. So I'm 28 now. I'm pretty far removed from high school, let alone college. But I think sometimes when I watch the episode, I can think like, oh, you know, it's just a grade, all that jazz. But I was very academically motivated in high school, even though I didn't, you know, always do great, but I I was constantly aware of the fact that I wanted to go to a good college and that one grade could really make or break your college aspirations. And Rory wants to go to college in journal to major in journalism. She wants to go to Harvard and to get it a, you know, a final grade in her English class of like a C or a D that will knock you out of contention. Unless mm-hmm. you can show a narrative that like, oh, I got to see my first year, but then look, like I got A's and I had trouble adjusting, blah, blah, blah. This, this single essay could really have killed her chances. Mm-hmm. And I think that explains a lot of the drama in the episode that from a perspective removed from high school could look like too much. Yeah, I mean, I really feel for her. It's, it's kind of funny to me now because maybe it's just where we teach, but like we have kids freaking out over A minuses, you know? What would a student have to do to get a D on a paper? I mean, I think I've given a D recently. I have um, too, but they're like, like essays that 
are not complete or don't- yeah exactly yeah <laughs> I, yeah I think because I I've been working as a grader a lot recently which is kind of fun because it allows you to just you know you don't have any you don't feel as bad I guess giving bad grades but really a d it's sort of like you did not follow the assignment yes that's the thing and I think that is what Rory alludes to at the end of the episode when she says the reason she did so poorly on the papers because she hasn't caught up on the material yet. Yes. So I think it's less like Rory made a bad argument, which as bad as your argument could be, I don't, D level is pretty, pretty low, but I think that she probably just didn't have the familiarity with the material mm-hmm. that, she, that was needed to be shown on that essay. I got a C minus on my first paper of my AP English class, my senior year of high school. And I was about to apply to college and I lost it. I thought it was a really good essay. It was not, they just didn't, my argument wasn't persuasive. And it was about wait, like we all wrote on waiting for Godot. Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, I got heavy it. For a- it's heavy for the first, for the first yeah. assignment of your senior year. It, it is indeed. <laughs> yeah, in retrospect. But yeah, uh, that's actually kind of weird <laughs> to me. Yeah, no, I didn't think about that, but it is odd. But um, yeah, I was really freaked out and I did, you know, I got the grade. That was my grade. Um, I think I tried to, I think I emailed my teacher and I was like, hey, you know, this is going to be devastating. And she was like, yeah, you earned that C minus. Like, okay, I, I, I did. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I brought my grade up, but it's really scary. It is. And like, this is something that I, I wanted to talk about and I'm not sure when the best time is like, we could, we could just sort of table this for the moment, but there is something to be said about the college culture graduated from high school in 2006. This episode was, you know, the year 2000. I feel like college culture, the like dream college culture was really like kind of at its peak. Yes. Then But this notion, there's, there's a moment later in the episode where Rory says going like Harvard is my dream. And I know that it's established that like being a journalist is her dream, but it does go beyond Harvard, but it did disturb me that she said that and that it's sort of an end point and college is not the end game, you know? I mean, I graduated in 2012 from high school and I do like we, it was very competitive, but I feel like there were so many news stories about it. Like you know, in 2006, like when I was in, in middle school and stuff like that. And it really, the, the pressures were really coming to the fore for the first time. And I think you saw that same thing carrying through to when I was in school, but I think that it like really became a national news story around when you were in high school. Yeah. And like costs were going up really high. And like, I just, I just remember that I had this book called colleges that will change your life or colleges that change lives or something. And when I think back on that book and I actually went to one of those schools, but that was like the book that I was choosing from. I was like, oh, college, college that will change your life, you know? And this idea was that college was the end point. Like that, it was end game. That I think is something you see Rory repeat throughout that idea throughout her high school. And I think that may be why she struggles so much in the revival. Yes. Because really college was all she was looking towards like and you know in college it was about it was it was about the college experience of getting as much knowledge as possible and I think that's very admirable but it was never you never bought as we've discussed journalism as like 
the next thing that she really wanted to do and yeah. Harvard and then Yale as the way to get there. It was sort of like, that's it for me. I know the show ended then and it felt like a natural end, even though, you know, it wasn't because that was what Rory wanted was college. And now she's going to go off and do something else. But like, that's the end of this part of her story. You know, this will come up a lot in season three, especially with like Paris, <laughs> Paris's storyline and her meltdown and college applications and everything. But I feel just feel like when I went to college that first semester, it hit me like, oh no, this is not this transformative magical personal experience like that's not what I want I do actually want to have a degree that I can use I mean my husband has been working for a private school and I can assure you that that stress on those kids is still there and it's still like a make or break thing and as as we know you know once the students actually get because we've taught freshmen a lot once they actually get to college that sort of neurosis that's been embedded in them, like about grades and performance and self-worth, like being tied into academics is still there. And that's why even the name minus can be so devastating, like such a devastating blow. So it just makes me sad. I just want to like tell Rory, like this isn't all there is, you know? No. And it's both so understandable because like she's so smart and she really does want to and we see this when she actually gets to college, like she wants to be in a place and she's so excited by being in a place where everyone is genuinely invested in learning and where she can study from these fantastic professors. But do I think Rory would have been fine at a slightly less prestigious school? And maybe if she put a little less pressure on herself? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think the rest of the series makes a convincing case that her pressure, she is intrinsically motivated. Like she mm -hmm. puts it on herself. And that's why I will talk later about when Lorelai says uh, Harvard is Lorelai's dream. I don't know if I, if I bought that even that she would have started saying that because to me, it, it has always seemed like a Rory thing. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, let's table that for the moment because I, on, on this topic of perfectionism and like self-worth tied into perfectionism, um, let's talk about Suki and her review <laughs> For a long time, I never understood why this plot was in the episode because I am sometimes <laughs> a bad reader of text. And, um, I was always like, oh, this is like a weird side plot that they needed to fill some time in this episode. And they were like, oh, let's do this. But then in this rewatch, I was like, oh, of course. It's the parallel plot to Rory. Yeah. Suki is the same type of intrinsically motivated perfectionist Rory is. And in fact, if we want to argue whether Rory wants to go to Harvard partially because of Lorelai's influence. Suki wants this just for herself and she's the only person pushing her. As she says to Lorelai, it's a matter of pride. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't matter to her like what the review, you know, if other people see it and are like, oh, is the risotto fine? Like she, she believes that she's the best and she wants people to acknowledge that. And I love that the show gives us that, like it does play it for laughs a lot, but everybody at the end of the day comes around and acknowledges Suki's excellence. And I love that the show gives us another model of female achievement that's not mm -hmm. academic, but it, that's unapologetic also. Yeah, I kind of went back and forth when I was thinking about it, though, where I was like, is this healthy? Because it's, no! <laughs> well, but, but it is kind of cool, like yeah. to show like women having desires outside of relationships perfectionism is not healthy in and of itself, but the fact that they are like intrinsically motivated, that they want 
to achieve some sort of greatness for themselves. I think that's so cool and, and pretty rare, I think, for a television show. I realized that we didn't say what, what was happening here with Suki. So listeners, Suki gets a review um, from a noted restaurant critic who's writing about the Independence Inn's restaurant. And it's a glowing review. It's about as good of a review as you can imagine. But there's one throwaway line in it in which the reviewer says, though the much lauded risotto is perfectly fine, blah, 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 everything else is, you know, this other dish is really excellent. And of course, that's what Suki fixates on. And this is a risotto that's if not her signature dish, it's one she really has a powerful emotional attachment to. She made it on her mother's deathbed and she lived three more years. <laughs> and she just can't believe that the risotto, she's not like, oh, he's so wrong. It's like, no, something must be wrong with the kitchen. And I want to like, you know, what, what I did or what was served and I want to fix it. And yeah. it presented as laugh worthy. But I also think that as we were saying, there's definitely something to admire about that. Yeah. She's the maestro, as Lorelai says in another episode. <laughs> right. It's interesting to compare, like, so we have Rory and Suki, who are these perfectionists who feel that they have been slighted in some way or that they, and or that they didn't live up to their own, you know, expectations. And then we have Lorelai and Lane, who just seem to be pretty chill about things in general. That's such a good observation. I never thought about them as a parallel, but yeah. Yeah. Although (laughs) I just really want to point out like Lane's eating habits are not. Yeah. We are concerned about Lane. We are freaked out. Um, (laughs) Lane is eating a, some sort of like vegan treat that is only 12 calories. Lane, you need some food to feed your brain and your body. But like, how are you expected to do your homework if you're eating only 12 calories? (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's like a, I think it's a rice cake. Oh, that's so non-nutritious. Lorelai makes some joke about how she's going to like throw up or something. And I thought, yeah, the, like this, the, the shadow story is Lane developing my binge eating disorder or something. And it just makes me sad. I don't think that Lane wants to not be eating. I think it's all her mom, which is why she, um, you know, takes all this food from Lorelai and Rory. But I think the fact that she's given only these two extremes, which is like rice cakes and Snickers bars, if she's running, she's going to get nauseous and vomit. Like somebody needs to put Lane in touch with a good nutritionist who can sneak her healthy or, you know, more filling foods because I worry about her. (laughs) I know. Yeah. And then um, Mrs. Kim calls a Snickers bar chocolate covered death. But, you know, I, I feel for Rory in this scene because she's actually trying to reach out to talk about her feelings with Lane. And Lane is just like, well, you're so smart. Everything was so easy for you. And you can tell that, like, Rory wants to say something like, I'm struggling. I'm really struggling. And she just kind of can't. There's this moment where I feel like Alexis Bledel's face just kind of falls where she realizes Lane's not going to get it. Like, I can't actually talk about this. Yeah. And that's why I think that's a recurring theme throughout the episode. She doesn't tell Lorelai about her grade, not because Mm -hmm. she's worried Lorelai is going to be mad at her or punish her. It's that she's ashamed and she's maybe caught in everyone else's perception of her as this girl who's just very incredibly intelligent without having to study or effortlessly or, Mm -hmm. or she studies and she likes it and she always does well. And she, that's so integral to the way other people see her that she can't challenge that. Like it's so embarrassing to her. 
that's why she can't say it, I think. And she she actually verbalizes that explicitly to Lorelai. She's like, I, I couldn't, when Lorelai finds out about the grade in the next scene, which we'll talk about now, she's like, I just couldn't say it. It's, it's so embarrassing. It's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, we got to talk about Parents' Night before we yes. talk about yes. the let's, revelation of the deed. Let's talk about Parents' Night. So do you want to take the lead on that before I go into my soapbox? Do you want to just tell people what happens? Yeah. So, well, first of all, we've talked about our anxiety about being late. Yes. And this is, this is the reason I'm terrified of being late because I do not want the moment of all eyes on you. Oh, it's bad. Lorelai could have played it off a little better too. Oh yes. I mean, this is one of those moments where it's like, okay, this is a TV show. I don't believe anybody would actually be that socially inappropriate. Oh, not even Lorelai. Like this is one of the few moments for me as the show's resident Lorelai defender where Lorelai is annoying. Just, just sit, just sit down. Sit down, Lorelai. Like it's fine. You're late. People are late sometimes. Sit down and don't talk. <laughs> yeah. She comes in. She's got the B-52s like t-shirt. Cut off shirt when she takes it off. And the, you can see her in the diner when she takes the blazer off. It's a cut off. Yeah. We'll talk about this when we talk about fashion, but I actually love like a t-shirt, like a band t-shirt under blazer look. You actually, I've worn that several times. It looks so good. Yeah. Lorelai's taste in music is questionable to me. Um, I eventually will get to the bangles episode. I can't stand the bangles and like, I'll watch that episode because I love the rummage sale. Mm-hmm. But then when they get to the Bengals concert, I'm like, I, I can't deal with this. So I fully believe that Lorelai would be a B-52s fan. <laughs> that reads for me. When she's yeah. like, what? B-52s? I'm like, Lorelai, it's on your shirt. Presumably you bought that. Like, I know. I thought that was weird too. And then she's like, oh, this was in the car. And I always think like, why do you have a t-shirt in the car? <laughs> your car, Lorelai. Like, are people leaving random garbage items in your vehicle? Because you should be concerned about that if so. Maybe it's Rory's. I don't know. I don't see Rory as a B-52s girl. It's no. Yeah. And it fits her perfectly. So I'm thinking she just didn't want to admit to loving the B-52s. So anyway, so she bursts in and it's super embarrassing. And, you know, I feel like I'm on a Max Medina journey where like I've always idealized him and I'm starting to see yes come around appropriateness come around to the dark side Catherine come yeah I mean I feel like I just like he is my type like physically (laughs) I think he's a very good looking guy and I think yeah there are a lot of qualities about him that in the abstract are very appealing like he's very smart he loves literature He's a teacher. He seems like a good person. I yeah, just don't but. like this situation. I think he reminds me of um, Gabriel Byrne from the 1994 Little Women. Uh, I think that's where a lot of your like your residual goodwill is coming from. Yes. And I don't know. I've just always been blinded by his, and you know, by any fault. And the show. The show like, wants you to like him. Yes. But as you have pointed out already, he's pushing Lorelai to violate some boundaries that she has, at least in the first episode, already established. And we kind of see that starting already. But before we talk about the flirting, do you want to do your Marlo rant? Yes, I do, Catherine. Okay. So I have a lot of problems with the scene. Uh, I will start and I I will try not to do this too much on the podcast because I'm sure it's annoying, but I came into grad school as a Renaissance literature specialist, uh, specifically in like Elizabethan drama. So with, in that context, this is an episode perfectly built for me to be annoying about it. <laughs> so at the beginning of the scene, 
Lorelai's not even there yet. Max tells the parents that their kids are going to be studying Elizabethan literature and they're going to be studying specific writers. So he lists off Shakespeare, Marlowe, Bacon, Ben Jonson, and John Webster. To which one of the parents asks, is Marlowe really that significant? Uh, to which Max says they want to give as complete an overview as possible. And another parent says, but is he really going to be on the AP test? Yeah, he would be. Marlowe, even <laughs> Marlowe is like the <laughs> most important of all of the like English dramatists in the Elizabethan period. And he's the second most important in all of those writers listed. Uh, perhaps tied with Ben Johnson, but like if you're doing this sort of stuff at a high school level or even a college level, they really like to test on Marlowe because he's like seen as a foil to Shakespeare. The likelihood that if you have an AP test that is testing on Elizabethan drama, Marlowe wouldn't be on there is insane. Also, John Webster is the real person that they should have been asking yes. this about. Like, why yes. do they teach it? Like, he's someone, if you're specializing in that, then yes, you need to learn about John Webster. But like, they had right there the correct person to ask about, but they just flashed, left it by. And that infuriates me every time I like scream at the TV. And the other thing that infuriates me about this scene as somebody who used to work in college admissions is they get the AP test completely wrong. I go into this. Yes. And I looked it up to make sure this had never been how the AP test was given. And it it doesn't look like it was. So they say that the AP test will be given like, you know, next month for the first time, like the first AP test. You don't take the AP test more than once. And I think this is like October, November. It's given at the end of the year because it tests everything you learn from the AP class. They're, they're, treating it as if it's an SAT test or even like an SAT subject test, but it's not, it's the AP exam. And you, the colleges, all they care about is that you took the AP class. They don't see your AP scores, at least they don't now, until you actually get in. Because the reason why they're important is like, oh, they show you're taking AP classes, but you get your grade from the class itself on your transcript. But the actual test, like whether you get a five or a four or whatever, that's important because it lets you opt out of entry-level classes when you get to college. And would you even take an AP test? And this is her this sophomore, is her sophomore year? year. I mean, I took AP bio my sophomore year, but there was not an AP literature for 10th grade. No, no. Yeah. Maybe there was like, maybe she would take, maybe that's how it was structured back then. Then she would take like AP something else her senior year instead of AP lit. Then the only reason I'm like being annoying about this is that the show, like the point of this scene or one of the points is to show that like all of the parents are very hyper intense about college and Lorelai doesn't know as much about it, even though she went to Harvard. But like the show gets what the parents and what Max knows wrong. So (laughs) like, oh, she's so ignorant because she doesn't know that parents can't come and watch the AP test being taken. Well, like the parents and Max are ignorant too, because the AP test in reality is not given this many times. And I know that's the universe of the show that I guess it is, but like, it's always bothered me that they didn't go that extra step to actually get it right about these things. Yeah. For a show that's, that really does its research on every reference they make usually, this is, I think, a misstep. Yeah. And that's why the, the Marlowe stuff bothers me too. Cause I'm like, guys, like that's something you would normally look into. Did you, when you looked up like AP history, do you know when AP stuff started? No, I, I don't. Maybe in the nineties would be my guess. So maybe this is yeah. relatively new. I feel like when, cause you know, on the topic of college culture, I feel like the AP test, AP classes 
really contributed to that as well. It yeah. sort of contributed to this like hyper focus on college achievement that bled into high school in a way that was maybe really unhealthy yeah. and still maybe still is. I agree, agree with you. The lighter part of this scene or what the show wants us to think is the lighter part of the scene is that Lorelai and Max have a meet cute. Yeah. Ugh. He flirts with her in the middle of parent teacher night. And then yes. says when he accidentally, when Lorelai accidentally tells an embarrassing story about Rory, he's like, oh, it'll be our little secret. <laughs> I don't like it. I think we have enough to talk about with this episode that we don't have as much time to go into our Max Medina stuff. I think next episode will be our big like Max debate. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. To get on the books that I think he's already behaving inappropriately. Yeah. And I think that what we're supposed to feel is just that he can keep up with Lorelai, you know? Right. That's, That's a good point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's not, uh, I don't know. And <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe we're being too harsh and he's just trying to make her feel better because she just embarrassed herself <laughs> in front of all the parents. And like the mean mom called her a scholarship student. Which like, I don't think Shelton has scholarships because Rory would have gotten one. Yeah, exactly. Oh, but this is also where we get Lorelai bringing up that she wanted Rory to go to Harvard ever since she could crawl. And I feel like, is this the first time in the whole show that we get this framed in this way? Yeah. So let's talk about that because that's really important. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's really the last time we get that it's that it was first Lorelai's dream or that, you know, that it was primarily at the beginning Lorelai's motivation. Because I think it does start to shift in characterization to like maybe Lorelai started, but Rory really was the one pushing for this. It does come up again, I will say, but it's like season four, five, I think. When Rory drops out of Yale briefly. Oh, right. It's like, oh, that was your dream. It was your dream. And and yeah, I like she gets to this point where she kind of has this realization that everything she's done has been for other people or for just for achievement. And um, I know that the Rory dropping out of school plotline was really hated, I think, by a lot of fans. I like it. I like it too. And it's very realistic. And it's, you know, something that a lot of, I mean, I, like, I've talked openly on the show about, like, I dropped out of college my first semester. And I think it it is maybe a criticism of this college culture, this like yeah. hyper-focus on college as endgame, because once students arrive, they have like an identity crisis. (laughs) Yeah. And Rory is someone who would have that because she's right to think that pretty much everything she's done has been motivated by pleasing people. At the same time, I believe that she's genuinely extremely academically motivated. And I would buy that Harvard has maybe become like a shorthand to her for like academic success. Like it's a goal, like, yes, to go to Harvard and to get into Harvard, but also like to, to be as academically successful as possible. And those things have kind of like melded in her mind. I never feel like Lorelai, except for this episode, puts pressure on Rory academically. No, no. And that's, I mean, that is really to be commended. Yeah. And I think um, I've always either thought that this scene was like weird with that in mind, or I've thought that the way you should read it or can read it is that Lorelai recognized really early that she had a smart kid. And that this was a kid who needed to be, you know, nurtured and really could achieve great things. And because her parents went to Yale, she couldn't, or went to Yale, she couldn't say, oh, she's going to go to Yale. And 
Harvard became like the goal school. And that for her to kind of became an academic, a shorthand for academic achievement. If you want to read it a little further, you could say that Rory was going to, you know, she sort of groomed Rory as academically successful in a way that would like spite her parents by not going to Yale, uh, which I think is also true. Yeah. I read it as very spiteful and that that's a theme that comes up, you know, during the college application process. (laughs) But part of me just feels like one thing that we've talked about already and that I've never picked up on before is just how unprepared Lorelai is for this world. Yes. Like even, even though she, she knows the world of country clubs and debutante balls and everything, she even knows like the social world of a private elite high school, even though where she went to high school, it's a mystery. No, we do not know. We will never know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, she dropped out of school, you know, at 17. I mean, she got pregnant at 16. Even when she was in school, she was never like, even though she was smart, she was never like a high achiever academically. Yeah. And she is completely unprepared. And yeah. then of course, as we've been talking about this episode, things have changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it so is like AP I've- classes and college prep. And, you know, this is a, you know, preparatory school. It's, it's fashioning little perfect students to get into Ivy League universities. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and and that goes to what Headmaster Charleston says is that like, you don't have to be here, but this is supposed to be difficult, which I I hate, but I think it's really, he has a point there. Yeah. As far as the Lorelai not being prepared stuff is something I've always noticed throughout the show, but you've given me a really interesting way to read it, which is that yeah, I never thought about how different high school would have looked like. I was always like, Lorelai, why wouldn't you know any of this? Because she's so knowledgeable about the other stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. she was in school at a time where if you did very well academically and you were smart and you studied and you were also, you know, you went to a very good school, that was all you needed to get into Harvard. Yeah. And she's just not aware how much things have changed or are changing in this moment which I think is understandable Mm -hmm. to me, especially since, you know, we're kind of at that point where the college culture is really becoming visible. Mm -hmm. I do think that realistically, like if Lorelai, if this were real, she would have been looking into it, like magazines wise and stuff like that. Like she never would have picked up a US News and World Report and, you know, (laughs) thought about it. Like, yes, she would have. I think Rory would have, like Rory being so ignorant about it in the second season, it it, like she doesn't know she needs extracurriculars is has always read is completely unbelievable to me she would know yes I totally forgot was it U.S. News that would do the college rankings Emily brings it up in season three yeah mm-hmm. oh man yeah it's unhealthy that's all I'll say. Yeah. we are anti-college culture we'll say that as uninvolved as or as unknowledgeable as Lorelai is about college culture she demonstrates terrific parenting in the next yes so after she found out from max medina that rory got a d on the paper she meets rory in the diner rory has forgotten that there's parent teacher night she immediately realizes rory that lorelei must have found out about the grade and lorelei is totally understanding when rory admits that she didn't want to tell her because she's embarrassed she listens to rory talk about it and then she validates Rory's feelings about, you know, this is, this is really hard. But then she asks her to move on. She's like, look, this is something that you have the right to be upset about. But at this point, we can fix this. Mm-hmm. So she both validates her emotions and gives her like a concrete plan. Like, I will help you is what she says. And like, what's the next thing we can do? And she vows that, you know, she's going to help her study. And she makes her feel better about it by, you know, joking that her future is only worth a dollar. 
this is great great parenting to me. My mom would have given me a very similar speech. I was watching this episode with her and I said that. Oh, but yeah, I think that this is a, this is about as well as she could have handled that moment. Yes. I want to talk about the studying montage. Before we get to that, we have to talk about the Shakespearean bullying in the (gasps) Chilton Garden. That scene is crazy. So Rory is like sitting on a bench outside in Chilton and Paris comes up to her and recites a Shakespearean sonnet in like the creepiest way possible. Yeah. And I always was like, unclear I was always like what is she what is she quoting from and then I, I had to look because I'm not super familiar with the sonnet spoiler but then that made me think that why didn't they do like a Iago monologue or like a yeah. Richard the third thing like it's I guess because they're you know they're studying the sonnets in this but I was just like they could have picked a better more apt set of lines thematically to have her recite though when I looked it up I have learned that Rory and Paris shippers see this as evidence of their romantic relationship you know it's a it's a sexually charged sonnet um and I was like okay sure <laughs> I don't buy it but okay yeah we'll leave that there. I, more to talk I fully about. agree with you like Richard I guess you know they've already proven I mean who who is this Jay Seidel is clearly not you know he wrote like for for Veronica Mars he's not like a Shakespearean scholar I get that something from Othello would have been pretty recognizable I think if she did like the I am not what I am thing that would have been good yeah it's a missed opportunity oh she could have done like the Richard the third like opening speech there were a lot of good things she could have done but it it's very played very well by Liza Weil Liza Weil yeah and it's so scary fantastic I love it (laughs) very weird moment so yeah let's talk about the study montage and this is like this is the reason I love this episode is just this scene candles it's like that perfect like what's the word like huga you know that's like cozy is it danish norwegian yeah 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 cozy like candlelight firelight snacks sweats perfect that's what i want my life to be all the time that's why you and i get along so well oh i love it i love it and like it's just i don't know it just makes me so happy and and it looks so cozy and it's ruined so quickly when I go for sleep. You love seeing the gals study together. Uh, Rory absolutely boffs that question about when uh, when Richard III was, wait, which one is it? It's, oh, it's uh, Comedy of Errors was published. She gets it like she's off by like a hundred years. Here's a quick tip. If you want to get like a lot of Shakespeare publication dates really easily, just memorize which ones were first published in the first folio. Know that one is 1623. And then you knock like several plays off. So you don't have to memorize individual dates. Grace's um, bard hacks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Stick with me, kid. We know we know how to memorize stuff like this. We got all your tips. Um, but yeah, the scene is quickly ruined. Um, though there is a really interesting, like almost dreamlike musical uh, intro yeah. there. Very Twin Peaksy, I thought. Yeah, I will say though, like one of the biggest lessons that I learned between my master's and my PhD is it's not going to help you to stress yourself out and stay up late. You know what you know, basically by midnight the night before. That's what, when Rory, so, okay, they wake up late and Rory has to go to school by herself. And we'll talk about that. But when Rory calls Lane, when she's on her way and is like, I need to recheck something in my notes. I'm like, Rory, you don't, don't do this. Like, you know what, you know, it's fine. If anyone yeah. out there is listening in an academic program right now, like just the most important thing the night before a test or anything is to get a good night's sleep. 
It really is. And I, you know, in high school and in college and, and through my master's, I did not believe that. And I think my mom at one point told me that like, and I don't know if this is, you know, fact checked me anyone, but she was like, your brain needs that sleep between like 11 PM and like three or 4 AM. And so she was like, she was like, go to bed around 10 or 11, because that's when you're really going to recharge. And that kind of changed my life. (laughs) I've always, I mean, I think it's because I was never good at pulling all nighters. Like I always got really tired and, um, I've always been like asleep before the test person. And I kind of use it as an excuse of like, if I definitely could have studied a little more, I was like, no, no, too important yeah. for me to get my sleep. But I think I've always heard too, that like sleeping helps seal that information in mm-hmm. your brain. And I love the scene where Lorelai goes and finds Rory at the table with the blanket around her and she yes. blanket over her shoulders and they both fall asleep at the table in what must be truly the world's most uncomfortable sleeping position. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, my yes. neck. I can feel it just from watching it. I know. So they, when they wake up too, they're both like in obvious, where Lorelai's in obvious pain from sleeping like that. Rory's 16, so she can shake it off. But Lorelai can't take her because she has a meeting at the inn at eight, which has always bothered me because I'm like, Lorelai, you blow off stuff all the time. You're going to blow off stuff this afternoon to hang out with Rory to make her feel better. Yeah. Just freaking tell them you can't come into the meeting. They will understand. Have somebody sub in for you. It's obviously a plot device, but it's one that I felt like was a little sloppy. Yeah, same. And also, I don't know, like, I guess she's not that late. And honestly, if the deer situation hadn't happened, she would have been fine. She would have been fine. But I just thought, like, I probably would have just skipped school. <laughs> my my parents were very, like, very chill about yeah. sick days. If I didn't have a test, I would have skipped. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure my mom would have been like, you're, you're doing a makeup test. <laughs> Forget it always in my career of, you know, being a high school and college person, and I'm sure in yours, there was a makeup test option. <laughs> we'll talk about that. But Rory has to drive herself to school. Um, the question of does Rory have her driver's license yet looms heavily over these past several episodes of Gilmore Girls. We never get an answer. And I don't she, know. I think it's, I think it is eventually addressed that she has a driver's permit. She shouldn't be driving without a parent with a permit. <laughs> eh. Well, so she pauses at a stoplight or stop sign to call Lane to double check something in her notes. We see Lane's amazing closet for the first time. Oh, goals. Her hideout <laughs> with all these cool psychedelic lights and music playing. And as she's talking to Lane, a deer hits her car. Now, this is an obvious plot device, but I will say as someone who grew up in an area with a lot of deer, deer do run into your car and they can do an incredible amount of damage. And if you get, if your car is hit by a deer, like you're lucky you live. Yeah. If it goes through the windshield, it can kill you. That's our true crime moment of the the week, I think, because if Rory had been hit by a deer at night and it had gone through her windshield, she would have died. Yeah. Would have had like, what happened to Rory Gilmore? Um, I like the, when Rory's like gets out of the car and is like trying to attract it. And Lane's like, deer like salt. And Rory's like, <laughs> where am I supposed to get salt? And Lane goes, do you have a lunch? (laughs) Yeah, it's cute. I mean, I I, I fully understand like that scene. And then also when she gets out of the car later to go check on the deer, that 100% would be me. I would do the same thing. That would always cracks me up. I'm like, Rory, the deer is not going to be there. Like, why would the deer be there? You you saw it was uninjured and it's just stuck around. And then what are you going to do if you find it? It'd be like the scene in Get Out when you're just like watching this poor deer like dying in front of you. 
my mom, when we were watching it, she's like, are they going to find the deer? I was like, of course they're not going to find the deer. And then I was like, what if they did? <laughs> or like, it was fine. And they had a heartwarming moment with the deer. I was like, it's not that kind of show mom, no. but it's a dark kind of show in that way. Yeah. So, um, to school, she is, she's 10 minutes late. Cause they oh my God. it's at 8.05. The clock shows 8.15. They're very careful to show us. That in my world is late enough, probably that they would have said sit quietly and you can take a practice or not a practice test. You can take a makeup test after school in the library. I have never heard of a policy like this. Have you? No, no. I'm trying to think like at any school I've worked at or like any like college or anything. I've never heard of this. This is insane. Now it's a device you know, to have this happen. But I just want to say that this is something that makes the episode really hard to watch for me because it feels so removed from reality that I get mad about it. And I'm like, it's so unreasonable. It's so unreasonable. I'm like, well, I'm watching a television show. And usually I'm the one who's saying like, this is a narrative device, but I just, it's, it's too much for me. I can't, I, I can't suspend my disbelief. But you know, it is true, I guess, about the AP test and about the SAT and ACT and stuff. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're just, they're conflating a lot of stuff, obviously. They're like, oh, yeah, they're, they're playing fast and loose here with what actual school policy might be. Yeah, because actually now that, I, now that I think about it, specifically the AP test, I remember it being like, if you are one minute late, yeah, you right. cannot take the test. Because that's a, that's a test that like they are, it's given, it's only one test and like you don't want people to, you know, meet in the hallway and tell you about it. This test, Mr. Medina could have just like, change some of the questions that way that were the there's no reason for this to be the case they seem to be doing it to be spiteful and I buy a narrative device when I'm like okay it's it's close enough and I I see you know the payoff works for me this I just don't mm, I just don't like it no but it does allow us to a have a nice mirroring moment (laughs) Rory mirroring Lorelai coming into parents night and disrupting everything also Lorelai almost getting in a fight with the mean mom. Yes. Is mirrored with Rory almost getting in a fight with Paris. And yeah. yeah, So this is the scene of Rory's freak out. Yeah. I love it. It's the, it's the best Rory scene for, I think last episode had a lot of good ones, but this is a great Rory moment character wise. And I think when people talk about like, Oh, Rory's changed so much in the later seasons. I think if you go back and watch stuff like this, that was always there. She just starts letting it out more, which I think is healthier because she used to just let stuff bubble up. So she freaks out. She's like, I studied for this test. I'm only 10 minutes late. (laughs) Very valid points. And Paris, I don't know what she says. I think she says loser. I didn't clock anything. I I just, I think I love the, like, what did she say? Like, what's up, Quippy? Quippy? She starts screaming at her in her face. Later, Headmaster Charleston says that Rory threw a less manic version of Lorelai's fit earlier. I'm like, Headmaster Charleston, that was so much worse. Yeah. Rory goes postal. And yeah. I think that it's very relatable to me because have you ever been in a situation where you should absolutely not be losing it? And you are, and you're oh, yeah. <laughs> in the moment that you're like, I am screwing things up for myself. I am reacting. Yeah incorrectly, but you're doing it and it's happening. And you're like, I can't believe this is real. Yeah. That is a perfect depiction of that kind of event. And then she screams at Tristan, like for the last time, the name is Rory. I love that. I love it. But one thing I I do want to say about Rory and Tristan is I love how even before this moment, she does not let Tristan intimidate her. She's like stone faced. She's 
there's no sense that he's actually getting to her. And I, I've always thought that was really cool that she's like, yeah. And she has that confidence kind of cute. Like she's like, no, screw you. And she has that sense of complete, you're right. It's complete confidence. And she's unable to be intimidated because she knows what she wants. And she's like a, you know, as much as she's suppressing her emotions in this aspect, she's completely confident standing up for herself. Yeah. Her screaming at him is just like a different version of what she's already done. Yeah. All of it gets Lorelai called in (laughs) to the headmaster's office. What do you think of Lorelai's reaction here? Well, it's okay. It bothered me at first Mm -hmm. with the like constant conflation (laughs) between like of identities. I hate that. It's too, it's too overdone. Yeah. We studied so hard. We, 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 and then finally we're just one person. But I think that that is such an important moment because I think that's the moment that makes her realize, ooh, this is not healthy. I think that's such a good reading. I never would have picked up on that. And I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So she has her own realization in that moment, even before Headmaster Charleston says, or maybe as like a precursor to when he says, she doesn't have to be here. Maybe she doesn't have to go to Harvard. She definitely, you know, it might not be the right thing for her. Maybe she shouldn't. Yeah. I think as far as like a parent freaking out in this way, I think it's justified. And I think it feels realistic, maybe not the extent to which Lorelai goes, of course. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you see your kid targeted by an unfair policy after, frankly, they've treated her unfairly. She's only been here for a couple of weeks. As much as it's a college preparatory school, blah, blah, blah. They don't treat you like this anymore. You can have high expectations. Yeah. You can have strict policies. But at the same time, you need to set your students up for success. Mm-hmm. And they're only going to do well if you're able to give them the tools they need to do well. No one at Chilton has given Rory any of the tools she needs to do well. And the extra credit stuff is the first time we see that. And I don't think that gesture is particularly, I don't like that. They should have just let her take in the test. It's that like trial by fire, sink or swim attitude that. That we've discovered is bad for you. <laughs> it is bad. Yeah. But. <laughs> I think so. I think Lorelai is right that like these policies can be changed. And I think if we probably looked at Chilton now, it would be producing students of a very similar, if not better academic caliber, but it would be treating them differently. Yeah. But um, Charleston also does have a point. Yes. Yeah, so that's the other thing. Like I, I'm truly torn because I think that the policy is not realistic. <laughs> Mm-mm. and just awful but at the same time I'm kind of glad that he's like I don't know I, I like secretly love headmaster Charleston I think he's too like relatable you know what I mean I, like you're always yeah. like yeah, no headmaster Charleston is a boy he does because I just feel that frustration of like you applied here yeah you wanted to come here and you're complaining about like we <laughs> like our policies, the policies of the school that you were so desperate to get into. Like this stuff attracted you to the school. Yeah. This is what is needed. These policies are what's needed to get you the results that you wanted to come here for. Yeah. And I think that that Lorelai kind of needed someone to stand up to her. Yeah. Some of the most satisfying moments of the show are when Lorelai thinks she's really right. And then somebody yeah. Uh, comes around and like absolutely rocks her. I'm yeah. thinking in particular of the moment in season two when she's yelling at Jess for supposedly stealing Rory's bracelet. And she's like, 
Rory never takes it off. She loves that bracelet. She loves Dean. She would have never gotten a second without that bracelet. And Jess is like, well, I guess she doesn't care about it as much as you think she did because she's been missing it for three weeks. You might want to rethink it before you start calling him son-in-law yet. And he's right. And she looks like she got ended, like KO'd. Yeah. She's so self-righteous. Yes. <laughs> Often. Often. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can, I feel for, I feel for everyone in the scene and, you know, she is behaving inappropriately. And one thing that like, because I think I'm writing my dissertation currently on World War II, like, Lorelai's use of like, Duce? calling people dictators, because later she like likened Stalin. Emily to Stalin. She loves the Stalin references. She I think it's funny, but it is inappropriate. Yeah. But, you know, she is, yeah, she's definitely crossing a line um but I fully understand her frustration and I think it's awesome that she stands up for her daughter but then also it leads to this amazing scene you know in the woods with Rory where she gives her an out and she says like you do not have to be here you can go back to Stars Hollow High it's fine and I love that yeah so that scene is when they're coming home from Chilton and Rory's you know where it's to get out of the car to look for the deer which as we've already established that's nice, Rory. We would do the same thing. You are not going to find that deer and they do not. Um, <laughs> but Lorelai says, listen, all of this got me thinking, like, was Harvard my idea? Yeah. My dreamer, was it yours? And Rory says, she insists, no, it's my dream. It's always been my dream, which is at odds with what we just learned. I think maybe it can be better understood if we give the writings, cut the writings some slack here as like, you know, it's become my dream and this is really what I want. Yeah. And I, I buy that this is really what she wants. I do. And I think that I really like this scene. I think it's great parenting. And I love when Lorelai says that, like, you know, you're 16. You deserve to be, you know, not, you know, she doesn't say out doing something crazy, but just to have a square meal once in a while and to get some rest yeah. and to hang yeah. out with your best friend. And if you're, in, I've noticed you're stressed and you're freaked out. And if you're stressed and freaked out, that's something that I should be worried about. And I think that's the right approach. Like you can yes. push your daughter who you know, or support your daughter who you know is really, really bright to the level that you know that they can achieve. But if it's starting to wear on them in this way, which it clearly is, then you as a parent should be concerned about that. Yeah. And I just love that we are so far removed from get out the tape measure. Brogate is in the past. This is not Brogate Lorelai. This is real Lorelai. It's kind of like an ambivalent compromise at the same time too. Like it, it says a little bit about what is what you have to sacrifice in this pursuit of this sort of academic excellence because Rory never really does get to stop stressing out. It becomes less prominent in the show and she, mm-hmm. she does really well. I think it's yeah. more like I'm doing this because I like it, but she never gets to relax very much. Yeah, I know. That's a good point. Huh. Yeah. But it's hard because she really does want it. And it's the same with Suki. It's like, is what Suki's doing healthy is making like the, what did she make? Like 40 risotto recipes and hers yeah. better. Is that healthy? Like, no, it's not. Really not. But the message the show sends at the end of the Suki moment, when she goes to the critic's house, she figures out what was wrong. He was served the wrong wine with the risotto, which like it actually would have screwed up the taste. So Suki gives him the right wine with the risotto and we don't see his reaction, but it's heavily, you know, you're supposed to get out of that, that he loves it. So that's like a moment of triumph for her. And what it does is like validates that approach, Mm -hmm. which is like, 
Suki drives herself bonkers, but she likes to drive herself bonkers and she is a perfectionist. And maybe this isn't a healthy way, but it's what's necessary for her to be at that level that she wants to be at. That's where I feel just so torn about how the show is portraying female perfectionism, because it's, to me, it's refreshing and it's healthy in a way. Like this, this storyline is completely cut off from any like boy drama. Yeah, right. right. Mm -hmm. It's all about personal, like a personal sense of worth and a personal sense of fulfillment and achievement and women's personal goals. But it's also very wrapped up in this very self-defeating and unhealthy narrative of perfectionism. So it's like kind of radical and positive, but also kind of makes me sad. It makes me sad for the perfectionist in me. And I think that the show is ultimately ambivalent about it because as much as Suki's storyline, like validate that, um, Rory's storyline, I think is left much more like she's going to do this and she will succeed, but like, you're supposed to recognize that she's going to really have to put herself through the ringer, or at least that's what I get out of it. Yeah. And then we end with (laughs) them coming back and a bit of a, uh, not cliffhanger, but like teasing us for the next couple episodes. Max Medina has obtained their home phone number, which I never thought about before, but like what? And called them. Okay. I guess now he would have sent them an email, but this, maybe he was justified to call Rory. Rory, you know, headmaster Charleston is going to let you do some extra credit work. It's not going to replace the test or the essay, but it it will bring you up to where he feels that she deserves to be. And then he says, Lorelai, it was a real pleasure meeting you. And I hope we encounter one another again. Do not use this child's academic performance as a way to hit on her mom. Foreshadowing. (laughs) Yuck. We will talk about this extensive detail next week. Should we go to our segments? Yes. One reason that I I like this episode is because I feel like we're getting like a taste of what will come with regard to like pop culture references with, with all the Shakespeare, like the Shakespearean bullying. Then there's more music. Although I was really weirded out. Like I, I love Black Sabbath. And so I was very pro Drella. um, Good. Playing Iron Man. Yeah. But then Lorelai's like, no Black Sabbath, no Steely Dan. What in what universe does your brain go? Black Sabbath. Steely Dan. Yeah. And then she wants to play Pat Benatar? Pat Benatar later. Yeah, but there's- She's just throwing all this stuff out there. Yeah, it was so, it's so weird. Um, although I do want to point out that I feel like Steely Dan is having a comeback. They are. You, you, you have not seen Euphoria at all? No, not at all. They played um, Dan in Euphoria? Yes. No. In, in the first episode of season two of Euphoria, there's this very like Martin Scorsese, like Goodfellas oh scene. God that starts it off and they use Steely Dan's dirty work and it makes sense narratively, but I was just like, what is the deal? What? I think it's like Steely Dan is having a renaissance. No. Oh my. Oh my. No. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a Steely Dan fan, but yeah. Lorelai bringing up Black Sabbath immediately followed by Steely Dan throws me. Lane in her awesome hangout room closet. Amazing. And I'm just going to be really excited when we get more scenes of like Lane name dropping her favorite bands. Next episode, we have one of the iconic Lane scenes where she's skanking to Rancid. Yes! Yes! One of my favorite scenes of all time. One of my favorite jokes of all time, which I'm excited to title the episode after. Yes. Oh yeah, B-52s. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Fine. You know, fine. I I can listen. I can dig some B-52s, but 
yeah, I think that's it for like music. A lot of literature. A lot of literature. Well, a lot of Shakespeare, which is cool. Fashion. Was there much notable fashion this episode? I really like Lorelai's purple ensemble. (laughs) Um, The like kind of leather pencil skirt with the blouse. I think it's really pretty. Lorelai's paisley tie-dye like shirt that she's wearing with the gray sweatpants is so wrong yet so right I love it and I hate it at the same time I love it and hate it also it's it's a classic Lorelai look but you're like what but it works on her but it would not work on us no offense yeah. to us but like wouldn't work on anybody else oh I noticed that Laura I mean Lorelai is rocking frosted eyeshadow like every episode a so lot. I guess I probably don't need to bring the first time I've really noticed how often she wears it yes only Lorelai could make that look good I like Suki's mini braids when they're just sort of like randomly placed in her hair, but the pigtails were made of mini yeah, braids. It was too much. Mm-mm, too no. much. Mm-mm, too much. <laughs> I do want to talk about Lorelai's leopard print t-shirt. Yes. Hot pink trim. I would wear that today. I would wear it every day. I love it. I would wear it all the time. I forgot. That's one of my top all-time favorite Lorelai Gilmore looks ever. I should look for it. <laughs> You really should. Oh my God. With your birthday, I get it. <laughs> Do you have the funniest line? Quippy. What did she say? What, what is this? What surrounds that? Like, what's up, Quippy? I'll look it up. But just calling Paris Quippy. It's just like, it's so perfect. <laughs> A weird thing to say, but it's so perfect. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Are those all of our segments? Oh, we have to rate the episode. Oh, yeah. Okay. You go first because you will give it a high rating. I got to give it a 10. I love it. Oh my God, stop. This is not a 10. I mean, you know what? I respect your personal rating. That's it's, I mean, I, part of me, even as I was watching it was wondering why do I love this episode so much? And I, part of me wonders if there's some sort of repressed thing, like maybe I watched it in high school and it just like filled something within me because it's, I don't think it's really worth the 10, but in my personal viewership, my personal, like, I'm going to give it a 10. Given this a five, I do not like this episode. I don't think it perhaps deserves a five, but I don't <laughs> like it personally. So in the, in the reverse, the mirror image of yours, I am emotionally going to give it a five. I love it. Probably a six, but I'm giving it a five. <laughs> yeah. And for uh, realistically for me, it's probably more like an eight. Yeah. But yeah. I think that's okay. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Uh, as, I, as we've always said, we really, really appreciate all of you. And we can't wait to keep going on this journey with you. Yes. Looking forward to more Max Medina inappropriate flirting oh, next week. Get ready. Next week's <laughs> Max Medina Thunderdome. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. See ya. Bye.